on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. On The Big Fish last week, April Vokey, fly fisherwoman extraordinaire, was posing a question for you, our listeners. And it was interesting, uh, one of our great listeners uh, was down fishing at Dartmouth Dam and sent me a screen capture of what she was talking about. And, and April was asking the question of if it's fair, if it could have a, an adverse impact on our sport, on, on the fish that we love to catch and, and quite often release. Can I ask you something? Yeah, go if you this like. Controversial. I was not going to ask you this, but I'm very curious. Um, live scoping. I had never been introduced to live scoping. It's very interesting. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. Do you, have you guys discussed that on the show yet? Oh, you're talking about the really high-resolution sonar images. Yeah, where they basically find the fish and then target the fish. Because <laughs> yeah. can and you can it. even see the lure <laughs> as it comes past well, the fish. Well, from a fly fishing stance, I think it's really interesting because you can see your fly and your line presentation. So you can see where it sags and you can see the motion. Because um, obviously what we think your, our flies, speaking of bait fish, are doing isn't necessarily what they're doing. And so from a live scoping stance, it's really interesting to be able to see our flies and our lines. But ethically, I'm not sure how I feel about it. <laughs> did it work, April? That's the main thing. Did <laughs> did you see the, the big cod come off its snag and, and whack your fly? <laughs> well, mess work too, Scott. It doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that question uh, posed by our uh, fly fishing uh, guru, April Vokey, who uh, travels the world, maybe mainly salmonids, but she just recently, has, as we heard, had a go at big cod down in some of the, the impoundments down south, Burrinjuk and places like that where you can catch them off the snags. But Stephen Gaynor has just put this technology into his boat where he fly fishes on Sydney Harbour. Morning, Steve. Morning, Scott. How are you, mate? Yeah. Is it fair, Steve? That's an interesting question. Um, oh, I, I don't. I don't think fair's the right way to describe it. You know, look, it's definitely. I always say, as technology improves and people's skill levels improve, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the fishery. Like that. That is a no doubt. And it's the same with the pros offshore. You know, they're, they're the guys that developed all this technology. I look at it a little bit differently. Like it's a great tool. It helps find the fish. There's a bit of a black hole you can fall into, though, I've noticed. You know, you see the fish, you see them there, and you're throwing flies at them, and you see how they're reacting. And, you know, some days they won't eat, and they won't eat, and they just keep won't eating. You know, because I've got that technology, I'm, I'm staying there, and I'm, I'm just keep casting. I keep sort of slogging away at them. You know, if I didn't have that technology, I would have moved on to another school of fish and found another fish potentially caught them. Does that make sense, Scott? Like It does. I, I, I said to one of the listeners who actually sent me a screen capture from down at Dartmouth. He's, he's a great listener who does fish a bit on Sydney Harbour and all around, actually. I think he, he fishes in Victoria a lot too. And he, he sent me the image of the, the live scope or the really high-resolution sonar uh, tracking the lures out the back of the boat. So you had a yep. sort of a, a view uh, out the back of the boat of, of the lure spread. And they're in Dartmouth, and you see this trout come up, glowing orange on the screen, and it grabs one of the lures in the in the spread on the left hand side, and then you see the fight. You know, see it coming into the boat, and while that's happening, there's another lure still out the back, and you see this other fish about the same size come sauntering across and have a look at that, and then say, "No, I don't think I'll eat that," and swim away. And it was really interesting little thirty seconds of screen capture. And I said to him, "Trolling can be very, very boring." 
particularly on those high <laughs> high country lakes that are so cold and you know all you want to do is get back to the fire so I said that gives you some sort of television to watch I, I don't know you know I don't know if that would enhance your catches because those fish are, are moving generally aren't they you know they, they come particularly the rainbows are in that upper part of the water column and, and you know you come across them by accident whether they school up in big numbers they, I don't think they do I look to me it's just another feather in the cap you know it's another resource that you can use to you know get you out of a tough day or do you know what I mean I, I don't think they're the be all and end all I don't think you should rely on them um, but definitely a huge help if that makes sense to you Scott yeah, I guess um, they give you a bit of confidence to know that the, there confidence. are lots lots of fish. Yes, yes. Now that, and then confidence is all we have when we fish, you know. It's what makes you put in that, that 101 cast, 102 cast, you know, when the day is going crap and you know yourself, Scott, you're only ever one cast away from absolute glory. You just don't know when that's going to come. So, yeah, if you've got a fish on a screen and you can see it moving up to your lure, if that motivates you to keep casting and keep throwing them out there, awesome, you know, awesome. But as April was sort of, you know, insinuating that what, what pressure is this going to put on the fishery in the future? How yeah. do we counter that? But yeah, well, obviously we need better management. If ang- if uh, amateur anglers are taking more, because rod and line fishing is pretty uh, low oh. impact, pretty sustainable in most fisheries. But if they're starting to, to, to have an impact, then the tighter bag limits, tighter uh, slot oh. limits, uh, catch and release, you know. Um, w- there are very good management tools that can be used if this technology does tip it too far in the favour of the angler. We're speaking with Stephen Gaynor from the Flyboat on Sydney Harbour. Of course, you don't really need technology to see uh, the, the giant salmon schools that bust up in Sydney Harbour. I mean, they, you, you see them down near the, the giant warships and, and down near Luna Park, uh, you know, tuna and, and uh, salmon and tailor churning the water to froth. Oh, uh, well, normally, yes. Um, it's funny this year because the, the salmon have definitely moved in. You can see that by the birds. But they're not frothing. They're subsurface feeding at the moment, which is sort of like you see the birds and you run over there and you expect to see the whitewash going mental and you can see them sipping onto the surface. So, you know, that'll change next week, I'm sure. But it is, it's just, it's great to see the fish back in, you know. We're coming up to October and that's generally when we start getting madness starting. Excellent. I'm going to say something here that some Sydney Harbour and and New South Wales uh, anglers will think is heresy, but catching salmon on fly is probably better, in my opinion, than catching kingfish on fly. They are just such a great fly fishing species, aren't they? They jump. I, uh, yeah. They really hit hard. They fight nearly as hard as a comparable size kingie. I reckon a salmon would probably go as hard. Um, they, they really do fight, and they're Scott, okay to eat. If you pound yeah. I think they go harder. Honestly, you put a 70-centimetre salmon next to a 70-centimetre king, you're going to struggle with the salmon. I think the kings are just dirtier fighters, aren't they? Yeah, dirty fighters, where the salmon just head down and go, go, go. The king will eventually give up. Like, I personally, I love the hook up with salmon, but after 20 minutes of fighting one on a six weight, I find it gets a little bit boring. I want to, you know, drop it and get the next hook up, because they do. They fight that hard. Oh, they're impossible to stop. Yeah, I tussled with one on a six weight fly rod uh, off um, Moon Island. It just was, you know, too much, too much. I went back and and uh, got a ten weight. Actually, I've got a, a ten weight now that that gets them to the boat quicker because you're on them forever. They they pull a yeah. a similar size trout 
absolutely backwards. You know, they're just so oh, God, strong. They don't compare. Yeah, they don't compare. And you know, for the for the sake of the fish as well, let's get it in fast. Get a release. Get another one. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, you use a at least an eight weight's a good good size for Sydney oh. Harbour, isn't it? An eight weight. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, mm. look, it's it's great for the rats as well. You know, you get the rat kings on the surface. An eight's good. You really want to start getting a ten weight when they get a little bit bigger especially around structure and moorings, you know, you've got to stop these fish. If you let them run, it's all over. Yeah. I, I love casting an eight weight. It's, it, there's not too much difference between a, casting a six weight or an eight weight that, that doesn't fatigue you. But casting a 10 weight is actually hard work after, after a while. <laughs> Hit your shoulder and elbow pretty hard. We're speaking with Stephen Gaynor on Sydney Harbour from the, the flyboat. Um, that uh, really high-quality uh, live scope, sonar technology there was something interesting that april said about using sinking lines you can see the sag in the line you know those lines that uh, sink at a, a uniform rate are, are really handy for presentation and also the the, the effect a, a sinking line does have on your fly it'd be really interesting to see those big uh, puglisi squid flies that the, the the orange ones that the kingfish can't resist that you present on sinking lines very slowly that that's just a deadly method but it'd be really interesting to see how the line reacts with a big fly like that? Yeah, well, I've um, I've had a bit of an issue with the old squid flies lately. That the sinking line is really good, but the flies aren't sinking at the same rate. I, I think it's very important that the fly sinks faster than the line if you're going to be doing deep water stuff. Uh, I just there's something about a fly line dropping underneath a fly. I just don't like it, you know, because you'll get those hits on the drop and you won't know. And then you do know, and then it's too late. So I'm, I'm a bit funny on those flies at the moment. That's that's my, my little opinion there for the day. <laughs> yeah, I do like the intermediate line, but but you need a faster sink line for Sydney Harbour Kings, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, oh, look, when we're fishing spots that are 20 metres deep, you know, on average, um, it's all about, you know, you're fine using an intermediate line, but the longer, you know, the more times you're getting that fly down and back up again, the more chance you have of getting a fish. That's the only reason, you know. Otherwise, you know, let it sink down really slow. Take your time. Look at the scenery. That's fine. But I'm after results. So I'm like, get it in there, get back down. Get back down again. Get back down. That's that's the only thinking in my head. Otherwise, you know, you just do with what you have. Yeah, and they're not easy to cast. I mean, those big flies are not easy to cast. A sinking line certainly easy to cast. But you, you just flip it out over the side of the boat and let it sink under the boat. You don't worry about a long cast with that method, do you? No, no, you don't have to at all. But the other thing, when I am using big, heavy flies, like even if I'm, you know, stripping big, heavy flies on the surface, I like to use the big, heavy sinking line because it'll 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 turn over that fly a lot easier than, you know, let's say my my eight weight intermediate or eight weight floating line. They just can't handle a big wet clouds or a big wet squid fly. So there's there's definitely advantages to the heavier lines. Um, yeah, and and they're yeah. great when it's really windy too. Go to a sinking line, doesn't matter what sort of fly, subsurface or surface, go to a sinking line and they're just brilliant because they don't get whipped off the surface of the water by the wind. They cast like an absolute bullet because they load up, they're so heavy and you can just, you know, one or two false casts and let them fly. Uh, they're really great in very windy, choppy conditions. You, you'd be amazed at how, how you can keep fishing with one of those when the floating line's just yeah. not a viable Alternative sinking lines are, are great for that, so it's good to have one in, in very windy conditions too. You can cast into a, a, a bit of a gale. They can be a, a detriment in fighting fish, though I've lost a few fish when the sinking line's going down and the fish is going up 
and it's, it's you know it's over there while the line's still going. It's got a big U turn in the line. And, There's a lot of belly to take in. Yeah, a lot of belly, but um, it's very interesting when you're you think the fish is off the bow and it's jumping off the stern. You know, I do love that though. I, I you know that's the pinnacle of fly fishing is in that line bend and buckle and spray water across the surface. You know. Isn't that why we do it? <laughs> oh, it's fantastic fun and lots of options. I mean, lots lots of options. It's a great uh, tinkerer's uh, sport, isn't it, of fly fishing? You know, oh, so yeah. many things you can do. Uh, look, just finally, I don't think the jury's out anymore, fly versus bait, particularly on that challenge we had a couple of weeks ago on Sydney Harbour. I think the fly was probably the winner, if, I, if I'm fair dinkum about it. Um, obviously, every day is different, but um, what's your thought of that? I mean, it was... Two against one for a start, so we did beat you probably numbers wise. But you were you were keeping pace. But I don't think we beat you with the amount of strikes you got. I mean, we probably connected to more. Well, I did. Craig seemed to be too occupied in watching warships and helicopters and <laughs> frigates and things, you know. And every time he's he's floated go down, he'd miss. But I was I was hooking up. He's very cultured, Craig. Uh, he, he hasn't got a very good concentration. He, he knows how to do it, but. He, he was enjoying enjoying the scenery, but um, I don't know. His timing was a bit off. I think he was helping me a bit too, so that always puts you off. But what what do you reckon? What what was your take from that really interesting experiment? Um, weed kelp versus weed fly. Look, I I do a lot of fly fishing, so I have days where I have unbelievable success, and I have days where I just go, "Wow, I wish I'd have stayed in bed." Um, it's just it's like anything. Every method has its moment in the sun. You know, like like catching brim with chicken, you know, versus catching brim with like little shrimp flies. Yeah. You know, some some days they're hot, other days you won't even you won't even get a look. And and again location as well. I don't think I would have done well off the sticks. You guys would have smashed me with the cabbage. We were inside the harbour and I'd match the hatch if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I think also the fish were holding the, the bait in their mouth for longer with the bait. When they were taking the weed, they'd hold the float down. So you had to wait for, you know, for that float to get right down and, and realize they had it or they'd turned on it and then hit them. Yep. Whereas for you, it was a case of down goes the, the, the indicator, strike straight away. Strike straight away, yes. Yep. And the other thing, I, I guess, remember when we are on there, I said how I make my weed flies, I make them oversized and then I adjust them on site. So, yeah. you know, if they're, if, they're, if they're doing short short takes and they're just missing at the, the ends of the fly, I'll just cut half that fly in half and then they'll start opening. But, you know, on that day we were out with Craig, mate. They were going in hard, mouth open, sucking in the whole thing. And I was watching the clunks of cabbage that Craig was putting on your hook and I was in disbelief, to be honest. I'd never seen such <laughs> such clumps of cabbage. Like how, how they can get that all in their mouth and well, take it, it down in one go. It's pretty awesome. I think when you've got a big, big lot of bait on such a tiny hook, you know, a little size 10, um, and he doesn't use those green hooks either. He just uses a little sort of um, offset sort of suicide hook. Um, he, he doesn't, yeah. you know, which is interesting too. With, with bait keepers as well, the little slices at the back that, that hold the cabbage on and put a real lot of cabbage on, um, then if you get it down and they don't hook up, leave it there. You know, that was the, yep. the, the good the good tip. And, and, and let them really get it down, whereas it seemed to be, a lot quicker on the fly. The one thing, the, the, the big advantage of the fly was with those fly rods we were using with the bait, you had to sort of drift it back. You know, you'd flick it out and drift it back, whereas you could go bang, bang, straight on the spot because they were right on the edge of the reef. 
straight on the spot. Yeah, yeah. But then the principle was the same. I had to get it in the spot where by the time it got down to where the fish are feeding, it was on a natural drift. Do you know what I mean? Where, you know, yeah, you guys had to pull it in, rebait it, throw it out. Like, I still had to deal with that a bit. I just didn't have to rebait. Yes, that's right. And, and, and that's a very good point, too. You were casting short of the actual spot because you've got to give that fly time to, to sink with a little split shot above it. Yes. Yeah, and then, you know, trying to use as little amount of split shot as possible. So it does take a lot longer. And we were fishing quite deep. You know, what we, two and a half metres, I think. Yeah, around 10, 10 foot on the old scale, I'd say it would have been. Yeah, yeah, 10 foot. So, you know, like for a fly, that does take a bit of time to get down there as well. So, you know, it's just it's just considering all those things when, you, when you're trying to match the weight and, you know, fishing technique. All right, well, good luck with your new toy. Um, obviously, <laughs> the, the, uh, the high... End fish finder. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but you got to have one, haven't you? If you can afford it. Ah, oh, mate. Look, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like anything. It's toys and their toys. When I figure out how to use the thing properly, I might start catching fish. But <laughs> at the moment, it just it looks good there behind, you know, on, on yeah, the yeah. console. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it you can look the part, Scott. <laughs> and you can say to the people on board, "Oh, yeah, well, there's a good uh, fish down there." See if you, you know, <laughs> as if you as if you know what you're talking about. <laughs> Hey, you know me, mate. You don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Ah, uh, no, yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Hey, good fly fisherman too, I, I'll give you that. Tight lines, buddy. We'll catch you next time on The Big Fish. Thanks, God. Have a great day, mate. Bye. Stephen Gaynor there on Sydney Harbour. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Anybody packing burly on a Saturday morning early often listens to a well-known fishing show where the secrets of the coast are offered up to Scott the host on the big fish on your local radio. Now you'd have thought a bloke called Stinker wouldn't be much of a thinker and would struggle trying just to bait a hook. But he's a talented orator and a lifelong educator as a rider, too, his yarns are worth a look. His dad would make a quid selling homemade fishing rigs along the New South Wales-Queensland border. They grew up on the Tweed and would always catch a feed. Both knew the deeper meaning of salt water. One day, while on the rod, it seemed the fish were on the nod. So Stinker opted to go in and have a swim. He tied off to a victor that got dragged into the river. Now the seagrass there is always neat and trim. Being excellent at sport, it was PE that he taught. Still, he wanted to improve his situation. So he packed up and went west, rubbing shoulders with the best and completed a degree in education. He moved on to Nelson Bay and became cultural attaché. He often came across an ancient midden. His boat, christened Stinkpot, he'd take around the rocks to explore the places where the fish were hidden. He passed on information in a local publication on fishing 
and avoiding getting queasy. He said the hardest part was to find them for a start, that the catching bit was relatively easy. Then, after 30 years of chalking and supplementary talking, he turned his hand to putting pen to paper about offshore island ghosts and fishing on the coast. Now he's authored several books about the caper. So remember to tune in every Saturday morning if you like to wet a line or cast a sinker. Cause you need to be specific when fishing the Pacific and you'll probably need a hook, a line and stinker. dogfish dave you have a way with words and you'll meet the man behind the legend stinker coming up next on abc radio this is the big fish well i've been fishing in the sea of love I've been trying to catch a one I've been dreaming of I guess I caught me four or five Just enough to keep my hopes alive I let them go cause they wouldn't do But I caught a keeper when I caught you I caught a keeper when I caught you Now when my friends see what I got They'd be cruising on over to my lucky spot I tell them that's alright by me There's lots of fish in the deep blue sea But you're my limit and I don't need to Cause I caught a keeper when I caught you I caught a keeper when I caught you On the day I found you The one my heart adored I put my arms around you And I hollered man overboard Now I'm so glad you never got away I'm gonna keep you near me night and day You're the best of the whole darn batch You're my once in a lifetime catch And now my fishing days are through Cause I caught a keeper when I
Scott Levi on ABC Radio. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Here comes Tinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find them? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? G'day, Stinker. Hey, Scott, how you going? Going really well. I know a lot of people listen to your segments and, and how weather-dependent your style of fishing is, but the other thing that limits your fishing is what's in your freezer. <laughs> well, that's very true. It's very true. I can't see any sense in going fishing if you have plenty of fish in the house. Um, that just doesn't make sense to me because I'm a kitchen fisherman. I catch the fish to bring home for the family to eat, family and friends. Now that's why, that's, that's, I mean, that's where my fish end up. It's not the only reason. I mean, I enjoy it just to get out and about. Oh, I love it just to experience the whole, everything that fishing's got to offer. That's the entire environment, the birds and the whole shebang, whales, whatever. But um, when it boils down to the bottom line, it, it's um, if I have fish in the fridge, and I've got enough for meals for the next fortnight, well, I don't go fishing. <laughs> it just makes no sense to me. So, But what's happening, this is a good thing, the family arrived this week, so they're going to clean me out. They eat fish every day of the week. That's great. So by, by the halfway through the week, I'm going to have nothing in the fridge, which means I can go fishing again. You've been eating a bit of coral trout, you were saying, uh, off the air to me. Um, that reminds me of the, the seven years I lived in Townsville. We ate a lot of coral trout. It's just a fantastic fish. I mean, quite a different texture to the snapper you love. Well, uh, snapper's my favourite fish around here. That's that's what I can catch. I mean, there are numerous fish that can be caught here, but I focus on snapper because that's the one that the family enjoys the most. And quite frankly, I think they're the most fun to catch. But Coral trout. I had coral trout given to me, four fillets, from a friend who went up on one of those excursions onto Swain's Reef. How Swain's Reef survives on blow, if I know. However, he bought these uh, four fillets of of, uh, coral trout back, and we had them through the week. Well, I think this is just magnificent. Uh, My wife just likes it cooked in butter with no flour or Red crumbs or batter or anything. So one pan, I used two pans, Scott, to cook. One pan 
is um, for I cook the fish the way my wife likes it. And the other pan is the way that I cook fish the way I like it. And I like to have a, a nice, crisp, crunchy batter on it um, and then tip my plum sauce on it if necessary. I don't always do that. But, um, well, we got stuck into this coral trout. And, and fair dinkum, there's fish and fish. If you're a fish eater, there's a lot of difference between a really top-quality table fish and a lot of the others. There's other fish in Western Australia, which are equally, which are absolutely beautiful fish. There's one called a DHU fish, U fish. Oh, and he's a big cousin of the pearl perch. They are beautiful fish. Uh, and there's another one called a ball chin groper. Oh, good heavens. They're fish in Western Australia. I'm talking about quality fish in the kitchen. I mean, here in Port Stephens, um, snapper is probably my preferred. But then, like, a, a dusky flathead is a beautiful fish. And whiting is very hard to go by. So, but, oh, others... Um, well, I don't like kingfish. I think they're horrid. But others do. Other people do like kingfish. I don't. I wouldn't eat a kingfish. Oh, gee, I don't go near kingfish. Um, and they also, um, I'm not all that keen on drummer. And, of course, anyone who's game enough to try a silver drummer, heavens above, even seagulls won't peck a silver <laughs> Oh, they're dreadful creatures. Um, so there are some fish that are... That, and I'm a snob. I'm a fishing... Eat fish eating snob. I only take what I need, and I don't catch and release. I, I don't. I don't bother doing that. Um, I just and I fish for the kitchen, and I get a lot of pleasure, heaps and heaps of pleasure, out of being able to prepare uh, fish. Invite friends around for for a tea, in in uh, prepare the fish, and I serve it hot. So I'm always the last to, to uh, eat because as soon as it comes out of the pan. You just pat it with with an absorbent paper, put it on the plate, and that's when you eat it. You don't let it sit because um, it just gets soft and a bit soggy. So, uh, yeah, serve it straight away on a bed of fried rice. um, With Oh, gee, magnificent. I must mention, through the week, I was invited to speak to kids at Shoal Bay Public School, which is not far from where I live. And a lot of the kids I know, and I taught their parents, actually, <laughs> which makes it very interesting. And anyway, all the kids, there must have been 50 or 60 of them, all sat on the floor of the assembly hall. And they, and then in I walked, well, you should have seen them. They think like a stinker sort of equates to some sort of Santa Claus figure. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you, you and do I dress up a bit. Well, you don't dress up, but you just wear your, your fishing togs, don't you? Well, I put my old hat on, you know, and, and they oh, they think it's great, you know. Oh, look, and I get so much pleasure out of that. Um, so I, uh, I just... Uh, and they've all read... Um, it's compulsory reading at, at Shell Bay Public is um, Clarabel, one of the kids' books that I wrote. So they've all read Clarabel. So I, I walked in, I introduced myself, and they, and they looked. They were just bubbling, really... Absolutely lovely it was. And I said, and what's the name of my boat? And they all yelled out, Stinkbot. You know, 60 kids yelled out, Stinkbot. And I said, what's the name of the cow? Clarabelle. And what's, um, what's the name of Clarabelle's calf? 
strawberry, you know, the whole shebang. Oh, look, I, I really enjoy that um, because it gives kids so much pleasure and, and it really encourages them to read, which I think is, oh, we've got to keep an eye on that. Um, and I encouraged them, I showed them how to write and, and to illustrate and to get back a little bit to where we were rather than spending all their time on those damn machines. And I think, too, if you, if you love that story, you also, it's easy to do a bit of research with the internet on the floods in the 1950s, the giant flood that led to the cow going down. And, of course, we've had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of flood mitigation work done around Maitland to because of that, you know, those events. And, and so we've sort of learnt a bit from, from that history too, haven't we? Oh, of course. Well, that was um, 1955, the Maitland flood, uh, when not only cows were washed out the sea, but uh, just about everything that wasn't tied down. Uh, Lord, look, it's, uh, it's such a thrill to see the look on all these kids' faces and to know that they're reading, that's a great thing, reading. And, and you can, you know, that's just the start of it, really. And hopefully it ignites, it, it ignites some sort of interest in them that they'll continue down that track. And who knows, some of them might decide to write books, which would even be better. I, I'm writing one at the moment um, called Banjo the Brint, and I'm working with Megan Barras, a local artist, and... Uh, and Doris Glasson, an Aboriginal artist, uh, and all local people. And it, and really, when it all boils down, there's five of us working on one little book, <laughs> which will come out in November. But it's fun. It's real fun um, to be able to gather all this local information and then paint it and then write about it and then produce it. Oh, look, it's... I'm having a great time doing all this stuff. <laughs> it's Stinker on the big fish, and Stinker has the kayak fishing wave, the revolution, hit your part of the world because people are just loving it, and I think it uh, really adds a lot of force to uh, how good the, the Aboriginal fisherwomen and, and men were in, in their homemade kayaks and how many fish they caught because they do all right, the kayak fishers, don't they? They're pretty sneaky. They sneak up on the fish and they, they catch them. Oh, it's, it's, it, well, Fingal, where I live, um, and remember, there's two fingals in New South Wales. There's Fingal Head up up between heads, and uh, but this is Fingal Bay where I live here in Port Stephens. But in front of my home, on the southern corner of Fingal Beach, is a little corner called Kitty's Corner, which is it's calm in in 90, 85 to ninety percent of the time. You can launch your boat off the beach and go out and travel less than two kilometres and catch the most magnificent fish, all sorts of fish, everything, not just snapper, but you know, any fish that you can mention, that you, apart from coral trout, you know, out here at... Um, well, you can at, get at, uh, a spangled emperor and things, can't you, yep, which are coral yep, sort of species. That's right, that's right. Hopefully coral trout will come down here one day, but never mind. But um, So what it is, it lends itself... Um, very comfortably to the kayak fishers. Now, their numbers are increasing and they launch their kayak in the same corner that I do. I pull the motor and I motor off in the night because I'm lazy like that. But they paddle um, with their feet, their legs or, you know, wherever kayaks go 
and some of them have got little sails, of course, and they get out onto the reef around about a kilometre from the beach, and, and they mainly use plastics, and the fish they catch are fantastic. Snapper, oh, beautiful snapper. So really, if you're a kayak fisher um, and you'd like to have a look at a really red-hot spot, come and have a look at Fingal because it's got everything that you need. Well, you can pay upwards of, of $10,000 for some of those fishing kayaks, the ones with the sails and the foot pedals and all the rest of it. Um, I guess spend what you want to spend on fitting them out. One fitted out is probably around four or five grand quite easily, and you've got to weigh that up if you want a little little eight horsepower, nine horsepower, five horsepower, and a little tinny like you've got or, or one of those. But uh, you get a bit of exercise while you're doing it, Stinker. Oh, i got enough of that. <laughs> That's right. I don't want to. I don't want to go fishing and exercise. I want to go fishing and sit on my backside. And if anyone's going to get me exercise, it'll be the fish on the end of my line. <laughs> Tide line stinker. Hurry, Scott. The big fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. If you're a regular to the big fish, you'd know we talk to a lot of fisherwomen. April Vokey, Nadia Taylor, Anne Mitchie, Joe Starling, brilliant fishers. Some great news for equality in fishing. You may remember nine years ago we first told you about the secret women's business Barra Tournament on Corroboree Billabong with Joe Starling, founder of the Women's Recreational Fishing League, which has gone national. We were talking about that just the other day on the show. Joe also started the Barra Prentice uh, scheme to mentor keen fisherwomen to participate in the uh, big barra tournament for women. Of course, the big fish regular Nadia Taylor was a winner and uh, now is uh, a fantastic fisherwoman and a real star uh, and brilliant on the air. I can't wait to get Nadia back. But we'll take you back to uh, that time when Joe introduced us to this uh, incredible competition and uh, why it was necessary. And it looks like it's bearing fruit. You know, secret men's business has been um, a, a term that's been bandied around with Indigenous culture, for, you know, uh, for a very long time. And it was some years back now that um, the girls up in the Northern Territory got together and decided that they, they needed a new style of women's comp because there's been um, women's tournaments around for a long time with your real women's and all of those sorts of things. But they allow a male skipper um, in the boat so that the women fish. And so the, the concept of those ones is to encourage more women to get involved in the sport. Um, you know, it's fairly stress-free because they don't have to drive the boat, launch the boat or anything like that. Secret Women's Business um, was developed by a group of uh, passionate female anglers up in the Northern Territory to go to the next level and take the men out of the equation to truly uh, get the girls capable, if you know what I mean. So you've got to back your own trailer, launch well, your own boat. For sure. It. Yeah, and the mm. person positioning the boat is the most important person in the boat, aren't they? Well, you know, exactly. Getting, picking the snags and, and the, the trolling depths and, and the, all, all of those things, that's, that's what the guides do. So that's the, that's the most right. important job. So having a, bl- right. a bloke there almost, uh, you know, denies a woman a chance to, to be the, the main person. Well, well, that's right. And especially as a lot of, uh, I would say, the vast majority of barra anglers actually do troll for, for barra and most of the big girls are actually caught 
um, on the troll, the skipper, as you say, they're the person who uh, is lining everyone up, telling everyone where to, how far back to put their lures, uh, reading the sounder, etc. So, so really, they're in control. So if you've got a, a bloke in there, the women are just hanging onto the rod, and uh, if they jig it at the right time, they'll they'll hook the fish. But um, to to put the women in control is the next step. And wonderful story, um, the team that I used to fish in up there, and in actual fact, they're the girls that are responsible for getting me into fishing. Um, a team called Sister Act, and they're actually my family. Uh, they have, we, we won Secret Women's Business a couple of times, and, and we actually, through that process, got um, invited to fish the Barra Classic, uh, which is a you know, um, men's and women's comp, but not very many women fish it. No, but it's pretty fair dinkum, isn't it? It's, it's oh, the big intense. time. That's very, the major leagues. <laughs> very intense. Um, obviously, I live south now, so I left the team and made room for another one of my sister-in-laws to, to join in my place. They just came 19th in the Barra Nationals as an all-women's team. Um, and so this gives a lot of weight to the, the um, tournaments that are set up to progress the girls through from beginners level, and Secret Women's Business has a big part in that because that that all girls team, who I'm incredibly proud of, would not be able to go into such an enormous tournament like the Barra Nationals, um, which is what they've progressed to now, um, and mix it with the high-profile male anglers. And, and come so well placed. I mean, they're doing absolutely everything themselves, including the research. And those tournaments are five full days, like 12-hour days on the water, on the Daly River, which is, is tidal, has movement of four metres. You know, it's incredibly demanding fishing. I, I don't know if I can paint a bit of a picture for your people, but um, we're going out on a billabong that... Um, hasn't had a big flush go through it, and so the lotus lilies have taken over. And these lily pads seriously would be uh, 50 to 70 centimetres diameter, and some of them stand above the water taller than a man, and the fish are back in there. <laughs> How do you get at them? <laughs> well, that's it. Lots of surface, very, very weedless, mm. and... Um, and the stems of these lotus lilies are like tree trunks and um, it, what happens is when you do hook a fish right back in there, you've got to high stick the thing out and yank it. But if it, they tend to sort of rub their gills around uh, beside the lily stems and with the wide gate worm hooks that we use for surface fishing, they're just the right diameter. If they can manage to, to um, get that hooked around the lily stem, the li lily stem won't give. And you've got to go back in there and fight the crocs to get your get your lure back. <laughs> well, good good luck with that. So that was on the big fish uh, almost ten years ago, uh, at the start of the secret women's business Barra Challenge, the all women's fishing event, which is now into its seventeen years, and it's really paying dividends. Women's participation in recreational fishing in the Northern Territory has grown to outstrip men's, according to new data released by the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation. Running counter to trends across the rest of the country, 33% of women fish recreationally in the Northern Territory compared with 32.7% of men. 
Uh, but Peter Smart from Darwin says stigma persists despite years of experience on the water. And our reporter Nicole Kirby went out on the billabong with the, uh, the women to find out how they were biting and uh, find out why they love fishing. Look, we've had a few dramas. <laughs> Last night it started off with a split eyebrow. One of the marshals KO'd me with the measuring board. Today we've lost a few lures, a few slip knots, dropped a barra, dropped a few toga, got a hook in the arm, got a bit wet. Nothing's really gone on plan. My name's Emily Darwin, born and bred. SWB is an all-women's fishing event, which goes for two days, obviously held here at Probably Boulevard. Um, how unique is it? It's unique because it's the only all-women's fishing event in Australia. It's, we don't have mask cookers, we don't have male decans, the women do it themselves. Yeah, look, it, nothing can beat it. It's, yeah, good day, hopefully a few more fish and it'd make it an even better day. That sun absolutely bites. Oh, I'm Rocky Edwards and I'm from Darwin. We saw the moment you were reeling in a fish. What did it feel like in that moment? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's yes. It's like yes. Best comp of the year. It, I think it just makes it a total different experience when it's just all women. Um, you've got no one but yourselves to rely on. So. No one yelling at you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Usually, yeah, we've got someone down our throat regardless. We can never do anything great. But, um, yeah, I've got my pump-up crew. Well, the girls come out and try it for the first time. They're, you know, new to fishing, lacking a little bit of confidence, and it's a great space to be with other girls. There's still, you know, that stigma up here, you know, that women can't do it all, that we, we can't back boats and we can't certainly take the boat out without our husbands being there but you know we've been doing this for a long time now and um, we certainly can. started fishing on this billabong in a women's comp. I couldn't fish, I couldn't boat. But there was opportunity to go out with male skippers that would teach you how to fish and some would teach you how to use a boat. So over a few years I decided I liked it and I thought, well, if I want to do more of this, I'm going to have to get my own boat and I'm going to have to, you know, learn a lot more about fishing. So here I am 20 years later still doing it. Was there a moment you knew that you were hooked? Yeah, day one. <laughs> I caught six fish in my first ever outing and it was day one of a, of a fishing competition for women. So I thought, oh gosh, I like this, what do I need to do? And it's like, go get your own gear. There's now more women fishers than men in the Northern Territory. Does that surprise you? It does You're... not surprise me at all that there's more women than men fishing in the NT. Why though? Like, why is the Northern Territory different? We're more laid back, aren't we? Our lifestyle, yeah. And we enjoy it. It just takes your husband to take you out once. We get out to amazing places. Our backyard to play in is pretty spectacular. Fishing and hunting is just goes part and parcel with it, and I think that's what encourages people to go out. So if you're a young lady and you don't do those things and you, you meet a young man that does, you soon have to. It's just part of the culture here now that everybody fishes or hunts or boats. Hey, Rowita, and I'm from the Gold Coast. So there seems to be more camaraderie and friendship amongst female fishers up in the NT, and they'll help each other out, whereas in Queensland, you very rarely... You'll see a few female fishers, but generally with male fishers, not generally in a boat of three, let alone 45 
teams of 200 women. It's amazing. The Northern Territory is streets ahead because now when you go to a boat ramp, you just don't see the guys going fishing for the weekend. You see families, you see you know babies, you see women go fishing together, you see couples. It's, it's not a common thing just to see men after men after men launching boats anymore. And I think that man's best kept secret isn't a secret anymore. <laughs> I work in a tackle store and, you know, I see women walk through in their business clothes, their stilettos, with their gun bags, with their fishing rods, their reels to get serviced and stuff. And it, you just think, wow, you know. And on weekends you see Dad with all the kids because she's gone fishing with her girlfriends. It's just pretty cool. You know, some nights we have, uh, we have uh, ladies' nights and we have to shut the door because there's 100 women banging the door down, you know, just really uh, big participation numbers. And, and I think when you've got girlfriends that fish, you just go along and go, hey, this is cool, it's empowering, you feel good, you can drive a, a boat or go fishing and catch fish. It's like an addiction. Yeah, like you say, once you start reeling in those first few fish, you're like, how can I get more of this? <laughs> the bloodlust. <laughs> yeah, it is. On that note, we've got to go fishing. Yeah, <laughs> all right, we'll release you. Last Sunday and I caught a smelt Put him in the pan and the fire he felt Of all the smells I ever smelt Well? I never smelt a smelt like that smell smelt As the salmon swam up the river to spawn yeah. He said to himself with a great big yawn ho, ho. The next time I come up this way I'm gonna make the trip in a Chevrolet Oh ho You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.